You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. All right. Uh, We finished up John chapter 7 a couple of weeks ago, had our application Sunday um, last week. Our last sermon that we had uh, on John chapter 7, we talked about um, Jesus's identity being something that um, we see through his words and his works, that it should drive us to trust him and his timetables fully which will allow us to find full satisfaction in him in a way that spills over into the lives of those around us. So you'll remember um, John chapter 7, we looked at the discussion that Jesus had teaching. He had gone up to the festival and um, had told his brothers that he wasn't going to go for the purposes that they had, was going to go for different purposes. He begins to teach, uh, reminds the, the Jews there that um, their frustration with him about healing on the Sabbath day is unwarranted. Um, and really begins to continue pressing in on them with, with who he is, and it's leading to tension, leading to desires for them to arrest him, to have him killed. But we see throughout that passage that evil's not able to carry out those plans because it's not his time, right? And so we even see there towards the end of the passage that uh, as people are believing in him, that Jesus promises that when the Holy Spirit comes upon them, they are going to start to see their lives spill over into the lives of others. So Connor even talked about that a little bit with, with his, um, his group pouring into him, the purpose being for him to then pour into other people. And that's how the Holy Spirit works in us as believers, that as we're filled up with um, his truth and his word, and as we're experiencing him in our lives, it leads us to then spill over into the lives of others where people are receiving encouragement from us based on things that we're learning. And so at the end of chapter 7, uh, we're seeing the frustration from the Pharisees wanting him arrested. Nicodemus talks about the fairness of, of what they're even doing. Um, and then we come to a, an unusual passage in our Bibles uh, because oftentimes, again, it's either bracketed and um, talked about differently, or for some of you, your Bibles may even have it completely removed from the normal place where we read our text and put into maybe the footnotes. Um, The reason for that is that there's a lot of speculation as to whether or not this passage belongs here in the Gospel of John or not. I'm going to read it to you, um, and maybe what's shocking is that it's such a familiar passage to us, and one that you may not have even been aware potentially doesn't even belong in the Bible, right? So it says in chapter 7, verse 53, just a couple of verses, then straight into John chapter 8. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law of Moses, uh, now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first one to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. It's a real familiar passage. 
Um, we won't do a show of hands, but um, again, some of you may not have even realized that there's a lot of debate about this passage and whether it actually belongs in God's word because it's such a familiar passage to us. I mean, pastors preach it. Uh, songs have been written about it. Um, it it's oftentimes grouped uh, right along with, with every other passage of Scripture that we've looked at here in the Gospel of John. Um, we're going we're gonna to look at the truth of this text, but then also in the introduction, I want to share with you some thoughts behind this passage to give you a better idea of, of why it's debated. Okay, but let's look first at our summary sentence. <clears throat> our zeal for God is seen through the way our life has changed in regards to sin, not in how well we see and judge sin in the lives of others. Our zeal for God is seen through the way our life has changed in regards to sin. And really, we could add the word there, our own sin. Our zeal for God is seen through the way our life has changed in regards to our own sin, not in how well we see and judge sin in the lives of others. For our kids, we need to take responsibility for ourselves before we worry about the wrong things other people are doing. We need to take responsibility for ourselves before we worry about the wrong things that other people are doing. Our zeal for God is seen through the way our life has changed in regards to sin, particularly our own sin, not in how well we see and judge sin in the lives of others. In this passage, what we're seeing is that the Pharisees appear very zealous for the laws of God, right? Because they've caught this woman breaking the law. They've come to Jesus expecting him to apply the law in this situation, um, or at least tempting him to apply the law in this situation. Um, And so very surfacey, if you're watching this situation play out, you would would observe the behavior of these individuals and think these people are, are rule followers. These people are zealous for the things of God. They are zealous for the holiness of God because they have identified one who has broken the law and what they are requesting is consistent with what the law says, that someone who is caught in this act should be punished, should be killed, particularly they are taking it uh, and applying the aspect of stoning as the, as the way that this person would be killed. And, and we'll talk about what she may have actually been guilty of doing with the aspect of stoning being attached to it, right? And so very surfacey, you would look at this and say, this is good, this is right. For those of us that label ourselves as rule followers, this would, this would resonate with us, right? So I consider myself to be a rule follower. I don't, I don't, I don't want to break rules. I want to know what the rules are. I want to keep the rules. Um, and, and I'll try to follow rules, even if, even if they seem silly and petty and nobody's around to enforce them. I, I was just raised to follow rules, and so I follow them to a T, right? So I might be walking down the street and there might be a sign that says, don't walk here. And I'm going to immediately not walk there for fear that somebody is watching and I'm going to be punished for it, right? So as a rule follower, I would look at this passage and say, right on, like, like this person's guilty of doing something wrong. They should be judged. They should be punished. Justice should be served in this situation. And we're going to see through this passage what the real motivation was and why Jesus responds the way that he does as well, okay? For our kids, constantly having conversations with my own kids about this, that uh, kids are great at seeing the wrongs that other people are doing, particularly their siblings, right? And so they can very quickly identify what brother or sister is doing that mom and dad said not to do, and they will bring that to your attention very quickly. 
Um, oftentimes for the same motivations that the Pharisees had in this situation, I think, uh, with the mindset and the desire to see someone else get into trouble, oftentimes for the very same things that they are guilty of doing themselves, right? It's a unique text because there's serious doubt about whether it should be included in God's word. It's not the only passage that fits this type of um, category. Mark chapter 16, verses 9 through 20, um, an even lengthier passage, is another passage that's uh, debated as to whether or not it belongs in the Bible or not. Um, why would we say that? Why, why would we contest whether or not this passage should be here? Well, it's helpful to understand how we um, have come to obtain the word that you're holding today, right? So you've got it in a different format. Some of you are using a digital format. Some of you are using a printed format. Um, it's a translation from the original language, right? But here's the, the shocker that you may not be aware of is that we don't have the original, original, original writings that, that John and Paul and others penned under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, right? We have copies of those originals, um, a lot of copies of those originals, right? So other secular works that people don't doubt and don't question um, and, and will say this is exactly what was written by this, by this author, we may have two or three copies of the originals that have been passed down over the centuries, Right? But, but most of the time, those are readily accepted as this is exactly what that author originally wrote, even though we don't have his original. These are copies that were made, and, and this is exactly what he wrote. Two or three copies, right? From Scripture, the New Testament, we have over 5,000 copies of the originals, right? So, so a whole host of, of um, copies to look at to verify and validate the things that, that we are basically basing our life on. Right, so so there should be no concern, no um, raised eyebrows as to whether or not the Bible is true or not, because we only have copies of the originals. Because that's true for for most texts that we have that come from from that day and age. Right, the the difference is is that we have so many more of Scripture than we do of some of these other secular texts that everybody embraces as the original author's words. Okay. Um, in those thousands of copies that we have, the earliest ones do not include John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. Okay, so that's one reason for doubting whether this passage should be here or not. Because the earliest manuscripts that we have skip over this passage and go from verse 752 right into 8, verse 12. That it's not there. Okay? Um, the earliest church fathers don't mention this text um, when, when they're commenting on it. So we've got some early church fathers who wrote commentaries on John. So they're writing commentaries on the Gospel of John. They're going verse by verse. And in each one of those, there are big gaps between John seven fifty two and John eight eleven. There, there's nothing there. They don't comment at all on any of these verses, which is odd because these are verses that demand some type of comment, right? Um, so they're not included in the earliest manuscripts. Earliest church fathers omit these comments. They don't mention it. Um, in the copies where it does start to show up, there's inconsistency in where this passage even pops up in those copies, right? So in some copies, it's in a completely different place in the Gospel of John, 
Okay, the majority have it here, but in some copies, it's in a different place in John. And in fact, in some copies, it shows up in the Gospel of Luke. All right, so the only time we have it in our Bible here is in John chapter 8, but in some copies, it's actually in the Gospel of Luke. Okay? Um, the style and the vocabulary is inconsistent with the rest of John's gospel. Now, we don't pick up on that as much in the English language, but just for an example, he's talking about scribes and Pharisees here in this passage. He doesn't talk about scribes and Pharisees together anywhere else in the gospel of John. So it seems like John did not write verses 1 through 11, that the earliest manuscripts don't have it, Um, When it does start to show up, it doesn't even show up consistently here. In fact, sometimes it shows up in a completely different book of the Bible. Um, The earliest church fathers don't even mention it as though they're not even aware that it would be in the Bible. And then the style and vocabulary, when you really get down to it, doesn't sound like John's writing in comparison to the rest of the gospel. All right? Some of you might be sitting there going, what in the world is happening right now? right? Like one of my favorite passages in scripture is not scripture, right? So what do we do about this? Um, how concerned should we be, right? Should we spend the next hour talking about this or, or do, we, do we just kind of mention it on the side and then move forward in our studies in the gospel of John? For me, when I come to something like this and I'm reading on it, I have to determine how serious is this, right? How concerned should I be about this? How concerned should you be about this? And two questions that I would ask and pose for us to help us determine how serious this is. Because we're saying, do we leave it in the Bible and call it the Bible, or do we take it out of the Bible and not call it the Bible? Right? I mean, that's what's at stake here. Is this the Bible, or is it not the Bible? Is this the Bible, or is it similar to any other book that we might read that's in a Christian bookstore, but it's not the Bible? Right? So two questions that I would ask. Number one, does it cause any change in our belief system if we include it in the Bible, right? So let's say we decide that it is the Bible, that it belongs in the Bible. The Holy Spirit inspired this. John wrote it, and it has the same authority as everything in John chapter 7. If we do that, and let's say we end up being wrong, have we changed our belief system by including it? Second question is, let's say we err on the other side and we say, this is not the Bible, right? Like it's not in the earliest manuscripts. The early church fathers don't talk about it. Let's take it out. Let's delete it, right? Realizing what Revelation talks about, like don't add and don't take away. So like you're like, "Mm, we really want to nail this, right? Like we want to get it right if we can. Do we change our belief system if we remove it? Do we change our belief system if we keep it? Right? Do we, do, we, do, we, do we change Christianity if we leave this passage and call it the Bible? Do we change Christianity if we take it out? And I would say the answer is no to both of those. So what does that mean? That I don't think we have to sweat this, and I don't think we have to spend a ton of time on this, that this can be extracurricular if you want it to be. But as far as the weightiness and the urgency of us getting this right, I don't think it matters that greatly in the long run. Why? Because I don't think it changes our belief system either way, okay? If we take this away, the gospel is not affected. If we keep it in there, the gospel is not affected because what we see in this passage, we find in other passages of scripture that we know belong there, 
okay? So that's the key here. We're not talking about some weird passage that it's like, if this is true, this changes everything, or if it's not true, this changes everything. It's really a passage that supplements everything that we know about Scripture so that if it is the Bible, great, doesn't change anything. If it's not the Bible, that's okay. It doesn't change anything. So what I want to do this morning, I want to make four points from this passage, and I want to show you how all four points are made in other passages of Scripture too, okay? So that we can walk away saying, these are things that are true that I need to live out, not because a author who's not part of the Bible said it, but because the Bible says it, at least in other passages, if this not being said here as part of the Bible. Okay, does that make sense? So doesn't change anything if it is or isn't part of the Bible. It simply reinforces things that are in other parts of Scripture. Okay, so it helps us. It's beneficial. So what would I say about this passage? There's no contradiction of teachings found in the Bible, and the presentation of Jesus is consistent with other passages. So Jesus doesn't act differently than how we've seen him acting all through the Gospel of John and how we will continue to see him act. Okay, so no crazy doctrines here, no crazy teachings, and no crazy acts of Jesus that aren't consistent with the rest of Scripture. In fact, Jesus treats this woman very similar to how he treated the Samaritan woman just a few chapters before. Right, so when the Samaritan woman comes to get water, she's involved in adultery as well, right? Um, doesn't treat her much differently than this. Really consistent in how he handles her as well. So here's what I would say about this passage. And I don't believe it was originally written by John, and I don't believe that it's authoritative like the rest of Scripture, okay, based on the reasons that I've given you. But what I would say is we can embrace the text as an event that most likely occurred, that reinforces truths we already believe, but is probably not part of the authoritative word of God. So what am I saying there? I think this happened. I think this story happened. And most commentators and most scholars would say that, that this is an event that actually happened. It just wasn't originally written by John into the gospel. Because John tells us at the end, right? He's like, man, I could have written books and books and books and books about things that Jesus taught us and things that Jesus did and conversations that Jesus had. But I didn't include all that stuff. I just included what I did so that you might believe in Jesus, right? So we know there's a whole lot of other things that really happened that John didn't write about as well. I do believe this thing really happened. So this isn't a fairy tale. It's not somebody, it's something that somebody made up. I really think that Jesus had a conversation with a woman who was caught in adultery. The Pharisees were trying to trap him and he responded in the way that he did. I think that absolutely happened. I think it's absolutely historical. Just like I think George Washington is the first president of the United States, even though that account is not written in scripture too, right? It's a historical event that really happened really happened. And it simply reinforces things that are in scripture that we already believe, okay? The background to this dilemma. So we're looking at this passage more as a historical passage versus a biblical passage today. The background for this dilemma. Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10. All right, so the Pharisees come and they are making accusations about this woman and her life and, and decisions that she has made most recently. And they rely upon their understanding of God's law and how she should be treated accordingly. In Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10, if a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. 
Deuteronomy chapter 17. Verse 6. So we looked at Leviticus 20.10, Deuteronomy 17, verse 6. On the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. The hand of the witnesses shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people, so you shall, pur- so you shall purge the evil from your midst. All right, so the law had it built into where it couldn't be a he said, she said situation and somebody die over it, right? You had to have two or three witnesses that could verify. So their stories had to be like spot on the same for somebody to actually be put to death for an act, okay? So the Pharisees come, they say, we got multiple witnesses that she has done this. She has committed adultery, right? You skip ahead to Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 22 If a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die, the man who lay with the woman and the woman, so you shall purge the evil from Israel. If there is a betrothed virgin and a man meets her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out to the gate of that city and you shall stone them to death with stones, the young woman because she did not cry for help though she was in the city, and the man because he violated his neighbor's wife, so you shall purge the evil from your midst." This action that she's guilty of is warranting death according to the law, and that's not disputed, okay? At no point in this passage does anybody raise a question as to whether she actually committed adultery or not. It seems assumed, and it seems confirmed that she did, and according to the law, she should die. Most commentators believe because the Pharisees are asking for the stoning piece that the situation is actually that she was engaged to somebody and committed adultery. Because that's where in the law we see the actual stoning piece applied. Which means if she's a, if she's a virgin betrothed, that we're likely talking about a, a, an 11 to 13 year old girl potentially, based on the age that they would have gotten married, being cast before the feet of Jesus with grown men asking to stone her in the presence of everybody, right? So you've got this scared little girl who has committed this act and, and has been called forth for it, brought into public about it. And the Pharisees are saying, what are you going to do about this, Jesus? Because the law says that she should die. Now, there's some other things that we need to note about this situation before we really delve into it. One, the law was given when Israel was an independent nation, right? So think about it. Israel was in bondage to Egypt. Whose laws were they subjected to? The Egyptian laws, right? They didn't have their own laws. They didn't get to carry out their own laws. They had to do what the Egyptians did. They were subjected to the laws of the land. God rescues them from Egypt, brings them to Mount Sinai, and does what? Gives them the laws that they will now live under as the nation of Israel, right? So so they're expected to do this. So a lot of the laws that we have in God's word in the Old Testament for Israel are Laws that are meant to be carried out by a nation. Laws that can't really be carried out if you're not an independent nation, which is exactly where Israel finds themselves when the the Jews come calling for this stoning. Because here's the catch. They didn't have the authority to do this. They're in bondage to Rome. Now, Rome's empire is a little bit different than some of the other world empires in that Rome 
allows the nations that they conquer to still act very independently in a lot of different things. So Rome doesn't demand that they have all the same religion. Rome doesn't demand that you lose your identity as an Israelite. You get to function very much like a Jewish person. In fact, they even had their own little kings, right? So, so King Herod ultimately submits to Caesar, but Rome allowed them to function very much like Jewish people in hopes of kind of keeping them happy so that they weren't constantly fighting civil wars. So you don't have these revolts if you don't always feel like you're in bondage. Because it's like, man, I'm still a Jew. I still get to function very much like a Jew. But one of the things they could not do is carry out capital punishment, right? So sometimes people criticize the church and say, oh, you guys aren't following Old Testament laws because you're supposed to be doing this and you're supposed to be doing this. And it's like, hey, even if we were supposed to do that, we can't because we're not a nation that functions independently. Okay, so Rome, Rome had the authority to kill or not kill. It's why Jesus has to be tried before Pilate. They couldn't just kill him. They would have incurred the wrath of Rome had they started carrying out capital punishment. So it's a weird dilemma that they put Jesus in because ultimately Rome prohibited them from carrying out death penalties. The also missing element in this passage Hopefully you've picked up on it in in looking at it in advance and even reading these Old Testament passages that I've given to you. The missing element to this holy crusade that they're on to punish this adulterous woman is that the adulterous man is missing in this story, right? They're both supposed to die for this, which automatically tells us they're not really that concerned about God's law. If they were, both individuals would be here, right? Their motives are less than holy because only the woman is. And in fact, most commentators believe the reason that only the woman is being brought is because they they concocted the plan with one of them doing the act. They planned it. Because here's the deal. To kill somebody who's caught in adultery, you have to catch them in the act. Not just hear about it later, you have to catch them in the act. The odds of them catching these people in the act at a time when they're trying to test Jesus, it's very low to the point that most people believe as evil as these guys are, they probably, they probably made this happen. And they're certainly not gonna put themselves on the chopping block. They've, they've created a scenario where they've caught a woman in adultery. One of them is probably guilty of instigating it and they're asking for her to be killed. But ultimately, it's not even, they're not even concerned about her being killed or not. They're concerned about Jesus having to make a decision that could ultimately cripple his ministry. Okay, and that's what we're gonna see here. So let's jump in here real quick give you four points that I want you to take away and remember from this passage. Number one, do not use God's law to promote your own agendas. Do not use God's law to promote your own agendas. For our kids, do not tell on others because you hope to get them in trouble. All right, this is the difference for a kid. This is the difference between you being concerned about somebody and telling a mom or dad or teacher because you're afraid that that person's gonna get hurt versus you being mad and wanting to get them in trouble, right? So, so we'll tell AJ and Abram like, hey, look, don't tattle on each other because I know they're coming with a vindictive mindset of I wanna use what you just told us and I wanna let you know that Abram or AJ's not doing it because I want them to get in trouble for this, right? So it's vengeful, Right? Like we're trying to use the, the holiness of what mom and dad has said as kind of the law for the land. And brother, sister's not doing this. 
Mally's great at bringing this to our attention, right? Like Mally will tell us all the time what AJ and Abram are doing, right? But not because she's concerned that AJ and Abram are gonna get hurt. Not that she's concerned about the sin that they're committing. She wants to see what's gonna happen. But what kind of punishment is mom and dad gonna give to AJ or Abram because they're disobeying right now, right? Do not tell on others because you hope to get them in trouble. Do not use God's law to promote your own agendas. The Pharisees attempt to trap Jesus with an unresolvable dilemma. Here's what they're hoping. They're hoping to catch him elevating compassion over the law. And they're really okay with Jesus answering stoner or don't stoner because either way they win in this situation. If Jesus opts to to stone her, he puts his reputation at risk of being a friend of publicans and and sinners, right? He's supposed to be a friend of publicans and sinners. People that are sinful are supposed to be able to come to Jesus and find grace and hope and mercy. But if word gets out that an adulterous woman came before Jesus and Jesus asked her to be stoned, well, now now the, the, the preaching of mercy and grace, it's hard to receive that if you know that you could potentially be killed for something that you've done. If Jesus opts to stone her, he also incites the wrath of Rome for violating their procedures, right? So Pharisees would love for Jesus to say, kill her. She's guilty of breaking the law. Stone her. Because then they're going to go run tell Rome. They're not going to kill her probably because it's the the accusers that have to stone her, not Jesus. So they don't want to be in trouble with Rome. So the odds of this woman even being stoned are probably very low. Because if Jesus says stone her, now all these witnesses are going to run tell Rome, hey, Jesus is violating Rome's policies and procedures. He needs to be killed. They want Jesus killed, not the adulterous woman. Right? If Jesus opts to release her, well, now he shows himself to be in opposition to Moses. Now you're, now you're saying that you're better than the law, right? The Sabbath thing, man, we've had a really hard time convincing people that you're violating that because what you're doing is helpful to people, right? But if you let this woman go, you're basically going directly against what the law says and that, that, she, that she should be killed. They didn't anticipate the third option is that, that he could forgive her for it, Right? You either have to condemn her or excuse her, Jesus. Either kill her or let her go as a violation of the law. Jesus is like, I'll take option three, and that's where I forgive her, and I condemn her sin in me, right? And that was the, that was the, the escape from the trap that they had not anticipated. They didn't realize there was a third option because they don't see him as God, so they don't see him as being able to forgive. But Jesus ultimately says, She's going to go free. She's not going to be stoned. But her sin is still going to be dealt with because I'm going to absorb that wrath. I'm going to pay the punishment on the cross, right? The Pharisees try to trap him, but Jesus operates in a way that even the book of Exodus talks about. How can a God remain just and merciful? The way he does that is by giving of himself, right? He shows mercy to his creation, by allowing himself to die in the place of sinful man. Number two, they mask their hatred with holiness. The Pharisees probably orchestrated this adulterous event to use it. They're bloodthirsty in their desire to shame and punish a person who had fallen, but ultimately they're bloodthirsty for Jesus. There's zero concern for her in the situation. They're focused solely on wanting the blood of Jesus. The implication for us 
and where we see this in another passage of Scripture. God's law does not permit us to be malicious towards others in its application. We don't get to use God's law to promote our own agendas, right? So Pharisees say, hey, let's, let's make a scene where adultery happens. Then let's put this woman in a position where Jesus has to make a tough decision. Do I sacrifice my reputation? Do I put myself at odds with Rome? Or do I show myself to be above the law, right? They, they, they use God's holy law for their own agenda. They try to be malicious towards others in the application of it. And Exodus chapter 23, verse 1 prohibits this, that we don't get to use God's law maliciously. Exodus 23, verse 1, you shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. You shall not fall in with the many to do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit siding with the many so as to pervert justice, nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. Right? God says, you don't get to use my law maliciously. You don't get to use it vengefully. You don't get to use it for your own agendas. Be zealous for my law, right? But don't use it for your own agendas. You could say, what even application does this have for me? Right? Well, I know for me personally in studying this, an immediate application for me is that I have to be very careful as a principal who functions in a school system where many of our rules and regulations flow from God's law, right? They're not God's law, but they are based off of God's laws. I have to be very careful in my position of authority that I do not use the rules and regulations of our school vengefully towards students that bother me, right? Like, and, I, and I've caught myself in this before, right? Like I've caught myself pulling out the student handbook and saying, right here, like says it right here, I get to do this to this student, right? But another student may be guilty of the exact same thing. And I'm like, yeah, but the handbook also gives me some leeway and some leniency. I don't have to do this to this kid, Right? Man, I want, you to, I want you to take some time and, and reflect this week. Is there any opportunities that you have to potentially use God's law in a setting where maybe it has affected rules and regulations? This is true even for parents, though, right? Like, things that you instruct with your kids, sometimes we can react vengefully, vindictively towards them because of the mood that we're in, because of the attitude that we have right then. And we can be very harsh in our treatment by staying true to the letter of the law potentially, but our attitude and motivation is all out of whack, right? We don't get to use God's laws for our own agendas. We don't get to use them to pour out our frustrated wrath on people, right? We also don't get to use them in a way to, to uh, hurt other people's reputation or to bring to light other people's actions in a way that makes us look better. We don't get to use God's law that way. We don't get to be a malicious witness that tries to take the holiness of God's law and apply it to other people in a way that works for us. We don't get to do that. And that's exactly what the Pharisees were doing here. They were using his law for their own purposes. If they were really concerned about the law, they would have been carrying it out differently. The man would have been there, right? They would have, they would have been operating under the fact that we can't even do this because we're submitted to Rome's laws, not our own. But that's not what they do. 
right? They're trying to use it for their own agendas. So God's law does not permit us to be malicious towards others in its application. Number two, do not fail to apply God's law upon your own actions. Do not fail to apply God's law upon your own actions. For our kids, do not tell on others if you're doing similar things. Right, I've had to learn the hard way when one of my sons comes to me and says the other is doing something. Sometimes I'll immediately react and call that other son into the room and start to punish him. And then that son will say, whoa, he was doing it too. And then I look at the other kid and I'm like, were you doing it too? Yeah. It's like, whoa, like, like that's not how it works. Like you don't get to come tell on your brother when you're doing the exact same thing and watch him get punished and you not, right? This happens all the time in our house. And so now I've had to learn, I gotta do a little investigating. Like I need, I need two or three witnesses versus one witness to drop the hammer when somebody's broken a law in our house because man, we are manipulative and we will use it to our advantage and we will apply it to others when we are absolutely guilty of the same thing absolutely guilty of the same thing, right? Just on a, on a minor level. Like, I try to over-communicate with my staff constantly about expectations, things they're supposed to be doing. Like, I try to flood them with information, ultimately, so they're not sitting at home wondering answers to questions and having to email me, right? So every time I get an email where I know I've covered that information, like, so many times, like, there's this twinge of, like, frustration. It's like, why? Why are you not reading all of my correspondence, Right? But I also know I'm, I'm quick to do the same thing with others who have communicated to me in my life to the point that sometimes I'll catch myself, I'll delete the email that I'm sending to somebody else because I know how much it frustrates me and I'll do the extra work to go find the correspondence that I've either deleted or forgotten because I know the information's there, right? I mean, we are so oftentimes guilty of growing frustrated, angry uh, towards people for actions that we are so oftentimes guilty of doing the exact same thing. Right? And that's what plays out here. They come to Jesus. They say, hey, we've caught this woman in adultery. The law says, stoner, what do you say? This they said, verse six, to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. Right? We're either gonna charge you for elevating yourself above the law if you tell not to stoner, or we're gonna bring a charge to, to Rome about you that you have elevated yourself above Rome. Right? Don't care what the charge is. We're just looking for any charge to bring against Jesus. Jesus bends down and wrote with his finger on the ground, and as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground, but when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. I have no idea what he wrote in the sand. Like a lot of speculation that he started writing out the sins of every person that was standing there, or he wrote out Old Testament Bible verses that would have convicted them. All I know is that an angry mob goes quickly silent after these words of Jesus. That somehow conviction sets in that they are very likely guilty of adultery themselves in some form or fashion. Maybe even Jesus writes something out that says, I know who the man is who slept with her and he's standing right here, right? Whatever he does shuts their mouth very quickly to the point that they don't even dispute their own righteousness. They just walk away because they know they're guilty. They know they're not without sin, right? Now, this doesn't mean that you can't have a judge demonstrate justice unless he's perfect, 
right? Like every judge in our county is sinful. And we hope that every judge rises above that and is able to perform things in a just manner. But what he's really drawing out here is that they have no grounds to bring accusation towards somebody for breaking the law unless they are willing to subject themselves to that same law and bear the same punishment. And they are not willing for that. So again, they look very zealous about God's law, very zealous about people keeping the law, but when they are addressed as individuals who are not keeping the law themselves, yeah, we're done here. We don't, yeah, yeah. Just forget we were even here. Forget we were even talking about this, right? Which is most of the times true when you're talking with two, two of your kids. Hey, he did this. All right, I'm gonna punish you. But he did it too. Did you do it too? Yeah. Do you want the same punishment? No. No, just forget both of us were doing this, right? Like, like, I retract all of my statements about what we were doing to disobey you. Because now if we're both going to be punished, well, now I'm not getting what I wanted. And that was to see him get in trouble and me get away free from it, right? So, so Jesus says, great, like, let's go by the law here, right? The accusers can cast the first stone as long as you're not guilty of the same thing. And that's why I really think it was probably tied to the exact same thing even, because they can't cast the stones because there may have been witnesses even there that could testify to something different. Do not fail to apply God's law to yourself for your own actions. Jesus does not, does, does not deny her guilt and right to punishment. He even goes so far to permit them to punish her by the law if they are willing to be punished as well. Jesus shows them to be unfit judges. They were only willing to apply the law to others. Jesus does not minimize the presence of sin. Instead, he exposes it even more. Jesus isn't trying to downplay sin. He's trying to actually upplay it. We're not excusing her for her sin. What I'd like to call out is that every single person here that is gathered to accuse her also is guilty as well. He maximizes sin in this situation. Implication for us. Our zeal for God is validated when we are zealous for holiness in our own life, okay? So I told you, I wanna show you where these principles are found, not in a passage that may not belong in our Bible, but in passages that are in our Bible. So we saw the first one, God's law, uh, don't use God's law to promote your own agenda. Exodus 23.1, don't be a malicious witness. <clears throat> don't fail to apply God's law upon your own actions. Romans chapter two is where we see these principles as well. So in Romans chapter two, Paul is doing a great job of showing the condemnation of man and the guilt of man. He says, therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance, but because of your hard and impotent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed? You skip down to verse 21 through 23. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor, high, abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. Man, verse 23 
is, is, is what this passage is about. You boast in the law, and yet you are breaking the law, right? You, you try to show yourself as a zealous person for God's law by accusing others and wanting to demonstrate punishment to them for it, but you're guilty of breaking the law, which shows that you're not truly zealous for it. Our zeal for God is validated, not when we see sin in others and try to judge it, but when we are zealous for holiness in our own life. Number three, do not miss opportunities to repent when you are convicted. Don't miss opportunities to repent when you are convicted. For our kids, always apologize when you realize you were wrong. These people realize they are wrong here. Otherwise, they don't walk away from this. They realize they are wrong. They are cut to the heart. They are convicted. They are exposed. But they leave the woman dirty before Jesus. And they walk away in silence. Right? There's no admittance to her that they've mishandled this situation. And there's no cry for mercy and grace from Jesus who has exposed their sin. Their guilt is seen in their lack of rebuttal and lack of action. They don't fight this. They don't kick back. They don't keep pressing. They walk away. Number two, their hardness is seen in their departure. They should have reached out for their own mercy. But when we fast forward to the end of chapter eight, it says that when Jesus gets done teaching, they pick up stones to kill him. Man, conviction sets in. They realize we can't stone this woman and we can't do anything right here. We're gonna walk away. We're convicted. But instead of acting on that conviction and seeking mercy, they grow hard in their conviction to the point that as Jesus continues to teach them, they pick up maybe the same stones and are are, are now, okay, we're we're not gonna try to catch you and trap you. We're just gonna kill you. We'll just kill you and we'll deal with Rome later about it, right? Right? If we can't bring a charge to Rome, we'll just do this and and see if we can get away with it. They miss an opportunity to repent when they're convicted. The implication for us is we must not harden our hearts when God is clearly speaking to us. This is a passage we saw in Hebrews chapter three when we were studying through Hebrews. Hebrews 3.15. That today, when we hear Jesus speaking, do not harden your hearts like the Old Testament people. Man, don't, don't ever sit in a sermon. Don't ever read scripture on your own and allow, and, and, and allow conviction to happen and then not do something with that. Man, act on the conviction. See that as a grace of God that he would let you see your sin for what it is and give you opportunity to repent and make changes to your actions. You think Jesus would have rejected these people if they'd have cried out to God for mercy? Man, he would have said, anybody who comes will be received. He's already told us that. Instead, they're convicted. They say, you know what? We're sinful too. We're guilty of breaking the law too. We'll take our chances on our own righteousness though and they walk away. Don't miss opportunities to repent when you're convicted. Don't grow hard hearts when God is clearly speaking, Hebrews 3.15. Then number four, Do not mistake God's forgiveness as a license to continue in sin. Do not mistake God's forgiveness as a license to continue in sin. Sometimes this passage is criticized and and validated for being left out of Scripture because some people think Jesus is too soft on her sin and that she will just simply continue to live in this state because he's forgiven her versus stoning her. 
For our kids, God always forgives us, but that doesn't mean we should keep doing the same things. Jesus offers to save her rather than condemn her or excuse her. He doesn't stone her. He doesn't condemn her, but he also doesn't just let her go on her own. Right? He calls her to something different. Right? I'm forgiving you, but go and sin no more. It's exactly what he did when he healed the man a couple of chapters before, right? Like, like don't sin anymore. Worse things could happen to you, right? You should be changed by the encounter with me. He offers to save her rather than condemn her. He doesn't stone her. Man, one commentator made this note and I put it in my notes. If Jesus isn't gonna stone us for our actions, then we shouldn't stone ourselves either. Sometimes we can feel so guilty for the mistakes that we've made that we're almost guilty of stoning ourselves because we can't let it go. We don't get to do that either. That's an, abusive, that's an abuse of God's grace. That's saying that God's grace isn't good enough to overlook this one act. Here's the thing. Jesus isn't surprised by any of the mistakes you made because he already died for all of them, right? You think he got on the cross and, and didn't anticipate the things that we're gonna do this week? Man, he absolutely knew because he already paid for them, so nothing surprises us. So we don't really ever let God down because he already knew all the mistakes we're gonna make. We don't get to stone ourselves if he's not gonna stone us. He's the judge, not us, right? So we don't get to beat ourselves up about the guilt that we may feel. We have to release it and let it go and understand his forgiveness. Jesus expects newness where forgiveness has been extended. Psalm chapter 130. I won't take the time to read the whole chapter but I do want to draw out two verses in the midst of it because it echoes this idea. If you, verse three, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness. Listen to the end of verse four. That you may be feared. His forgiveness is meant to lead us into a healthy fear of obedience to him, not a license to keep sinning. We don't get to abuse his grace, right? Implication, a true understanding of God's grace leads us away from sin, not further into it. We see this in Romans chapter six. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism and death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Jesus gives this woman an expectation of going and sinning no more. All right. Don't use God's law to promote your own agendas. Don't fail to apply God's law to your own actions. Don't miss opportunities to repent when you're convicted. Don't mistake God's forgiveness as a license to continue in sin. Our zeal for God is seen through the way our life is changed in regards to our own sin, not in how well we see it and judge it in the lives of others. Two points of application for you. Number one, how to handle sin like Jesus did and how to see our sin like Jesus does. All right, first one, how to handle sin like Jesus did. Seek to address sin in the lives of others with the goal of rescuing and preserving them rather than condemning them. Some people take passages like we've looked at today and think that there should never be discussion about the sin that somebody else is committing. 
that this passage removes any right that we have to go speak into the life of somebody else. They oftentimes try to use Matthew 7 to back that up. Matthew 7, 1, judge not that you be not judged, right? And people love to stop quoting it there. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. That's certainly playing out here, right? Jesus says, great, let's judge her. But let's use the same judgment against you guys. Verse three, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but you do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. But Jesus doesn't stop there. First, take the log out of your own eye. Then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Right? The implication is you do need to speak into the life of somebody else that's committing sin. But you need to deal with sin in your own life first so that you can effectively do that. But there's never a command here. There's never even the hint here that we're not supposed to speak into the lives of others about their sin. We're just supposed to deal with it at home first so that we can do that, so that we can help people out and, and, and get them uh, escaping from that temptation. Galatians chapter 6, verse 1 and 2 talks about when you see a brother who has fallen, that we have to go get him, that we're to bear his burden, that we're to rescue him. Hebrews 3, 12 through 13 talks about exhorting one another, right, so that we don't fall into the deceitfulness and the hardness of sin. Man, we have absolutely every right and calling (coughs) to go speak into other people's lives that are involved in sin but not for the purposes of condemning them, for the purposes of rescuing them. That's the difference between tattling on somebody, right? And out of love for them, going and telling somebody something that somebody else is doing because you're concerned about them. Not because you want to look better, not because you want them to be punished, but because you want them to be helped. Because you want them to be helped. How to see our sin like Jesus does? Rest in our freedom from condemnation, not being based on going and sinning no more, but instead on his satisfactory work. You know what this passage doesn't say? It doesn't say, go and sin no more and I won't condemn you. He says, I don't condemn you either. Go and sin no more. There's a difference. There's a difference between works-based salvation and Christ-based salvation there. Because if he had said, Go and sin no more, and then I won't condemn you. Well, now it's based completely on her performance. But he can confidently say, I don't condemn you because I'm about to condemn it in myself on the cross. But now that you've had this encounter with me, go and sin no more. Romans chapter 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Doesn't say anything about if you go on and sin no more. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Romans three twenty For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift, the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, who God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. 
This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Man, how does, how does God merge his holiness and his grace together? How does he become the just judge and the justifier? It's through the work of Jesus. He has to condemn sin. He has to punish sin but he doesn't have to do it towards us. He can opt to do it towards his son, and that's exactly what he's chosen to do. And we can rest in that today, that we're not condemned, that we come before him just like the woman caught in adultery, just like the men that brought her before Jesus stood condemned as well. But we can look into the eyes of Jesus, and he can say, I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more, because I've paid your debt on the cross. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. We thank you. We thank you for this passage, even though we have serious questions as to whether or not you meant for it to be included in the Bible. God, we're thankful that it just simply reinforces things that you say in other parts of the Bible. God, we're thankful that it can help us in our faith, even if it doesn't come directly from you as authority for our faith. We're thankful that Jesus functioned this way and that Jesus acted this way, and that when we read a passage like this, it simply, it simply confirms what we would expect Jesus to do in this type of situation. We're so grateful and thankful that we can expect to not be condemned when we sin. When we sin this week, God, we're thankful that we're not gonna be condemned for it, that you've condemned sin in the flesh on the cross through your son, Jesus. We thank you and praise you for that, Lord. Father, help it to empower us to go this week and sin no more. Help us to be zealous for holiness in our own life as much as our flesh is very quick to find it in the lives of others. Help us to deal with sin personally. And then God, I pray that you would equip us to help others deal with their sin. Not in a condemning way, but with an attitude to rescue, to help, to love and support. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.